And the rest of you, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to be reading two passages this morning. First, 2 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And then we'll jump ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 6, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. If you're just visiting us today for the first time, or maybe the second time, welcome. We're glad to have you here worshiping the Lord our God together. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the life of David. We're calling this the Gospel According to David. You may know, or you may not know, that David, his biography in the Old Testament is the longest biography of any person in the ancient world, not only in the Bible, but any other person in antiquity. There's no person who has more written about their life in the ancient world than David, King David. So obviously, David can show us what makes a life, and David can show us what breaks a life. He shows us what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And so with that in mind, let's give our attention to God's Word, starting out with 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll skip ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is God's Word. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led, out, led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now let's jump ahead to chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baali Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside, beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst at forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom 
and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor." And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this amazing story. I pray, Lord, you give us understanding as we study it together this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. How many of you ever heard the phrase, Opening Pandora's Box. Have you heard that? Some, several of you have. Uh, in the South, we call it opening up a can of worms. But the idea is the same. The idea is that when you open Pandora's box, you invite all kinds of trouble into your life that wouldn't be there if you hadn't made the mistake of opening up Pandora's box. Now, the original story comes from a Greek poet named Hesiod who wrote a story, a poem about Pandora's box in the 7th century B.C., 700 years before the birth of David, for, or before the birth of Jesus, and 400 years after the life of King David. Now, in the story of Pandora's box, a Greek god named Zeus plays a cruel trick on another Greek god named Epimetheus by giving him a box filled with death, misery, and despair. It was basically the worst white elephant gift ever. It was like, what'd you give me for Christmas, Zeus? Death, misery, and despair. Dang it. I was really hoping for something else, but here you go. 
Well, Epithemius was supposed to open the box, but before he could, a woman named Pandora opened the box instead. Unleashing death, misery, and despair, not only on the Greek god Epimetheus, but upon the whole world. Now, it's not a very uplifting story at all, and since it is uh, Valentine's Day, I hope that none of you got something resembling Pandora's box for this special someone in your life, but that's what happened. The point of the story is, you never want to open Pandora's box. Because if you do, you never know what the Greek gods are going to do. The Greek gods were very unpredictable. They were often cruel and vindictive. They often played tricks on other people. The question is, is our God like that? Sadly, I think a lot of people think he is. Some people think that our God is cruel and vindictive. Some people think that our God is a God who plays tricks on people. Some people read a story like this and they say, I can never believe in a God like that. A God who would strike down a poor kid named Uzzah because he happened to reach out and take hold of the ark, he, he didn't mean any harm. He just made a mistake. What kind of God would kill someone for touching his magic box? Are they right? Is our God like Zeus? Is the Ark of the Covenant like Pandora's box? What's inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Is it death? Is it misery? Is it despair? Or is it grace? Is it mercy? Is it peace? When you open the ark, will God strike you dead like Uzzah? Or will he give you life like David? This morning we're going to talk about a very mysterious box, the Ark of the Covenant. Now based on its description in Exodus 25, here's a little bit of what we think it looked like. You want to put that up on the slide? Now, you can see it's a large wooden box overlaid with gold. There are two angels on top of the box, two cherubim, framing an open area that we call the mercy seat. It was such a holy box that it was kept in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle and then later the temple in an area called the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was the holiest relic in all of Israel. In fact, it was the holiest relic in the entirety of the ancient world. On one hand, it represented God's justice because within the Ark was an original copy of one of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The laws of God written by the finger of God given to Moses, his prophet. But also within the Ark was God's mercy. For there was a single flake of manna, a single piece of manna within the ark. Do you remember the story of the Israelites and the manna in the wilderness? God's people had exited the land of Egypt, and they complained before God. They grumbled before God. They said, why have you brought us to die in the wilderness? And God sent them bread from heaven. Bread of life. Bread of mercy a symbolic token of God's amazing grace. A piece of that grace was in the ark. When improperly opened, the ark of the covenant can unleash death, misery, and despair, just like Pandora's box. Ask Uzzah. 
Ask the Philistines. They captured the ark in battle, and it was such a headache that they eventually put it on an ox cart and sent it back to Israel. They said, we don't want it. But when properly opened, the ark of the covenant will unleash a tidal wave of grace and mercy and peace. Grace that will make you dance like nobody's watching, even if they are. Just ask David and the Israelites. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at the story of David and the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to do so by breaking up this story, which is a little bit of a long story, into four separate scenes. Each scene tells us a little bit about our sin and a whole lot about the grace and mercy of God. In scene one, Uzzah drops the Ark, showing us why we need God's grace. In scene two, David doubts the ark, showing us where we find God's grace. In scene three, David dances before the ark, showing us how we should respond to God's grace. And finally, in scene four, Michael despises the ark, showing us what happens when we reject God's grace. It's an amazing story, and our God is an amazing God. His grace is amazing grace. How do we get it? How do we open the box? Do we want to open the box? Let's take a closer look. Scene one, Uzzah drops the ark, showing us why we need God's grace. Verse one, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which was called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, here are a few things you need to know before we get specifically to the story of Uzzah. Last week, we found ourselves in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Remember, David had been anointed king by Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 16. He defeated the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And then, chapter 18, we're told the story of two very different men who had two very different reactions to David. Jonathan loved David. He was David's best friend. And King Saul hated David. He was David's sworn enemy. For years and years, Saul tried to kill David, but David, for his part, refused to kill King Saul. As he said, essentially, God has has made Saul the king, and so if God wants to remove Saul from the throne, then God will do it. I will not do it by my own hand. Far be it from me if I should lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. He was so serious about this. There was one story where at David and his men, mighty men, were hiding in a cave. King Saul came in to use the bathroom. It was my favorite story when I was 10 years old. <laughs> King David walks up to him thinking that he might kill him, urged by his friends, kill him, kill the king, the Lord has put him in your hands but he cut off a small portion of his cloak. And even then, he was racked with guilt and anguish that he would go so far as to lay a hand against the Lord's anointed king. Now, fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 
Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, David's best friend, were killed by the Philistines on top of Mount Gilboa. David, the son of Jesse, became the king over the southern tribes of Israel. And Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, became king over the northern part of Israel. There was intrigue, there was murder, it was like a really bad presbytery meeting, but eventually, only David is laughing, but that's okay, that was for you David, but eventually the dust settled and David took his rightful place as the king of Israel. We read about that in the opening verses of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, as one of his first official actions, David decided that he would bring the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured by the Philistines and abandoned by Saul, back to the capital city of Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Remember, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't just a magic box or or a relic. It represented the very presence of God. And so David was essentially saying, by retrieving the ark with these 30,000 men, I can't govern this nation without God. I can't live my life without God. God must be the center of everything that I do. And he was right. We cannot govern our church without God. Our church is meaningless unless God is at the center of all we do. Our leaders cannot govern the nation. Our fathers cannot govern our families. Our mothers cannot govern our families unless God is at the center of all that we do. We cannot abandon the Lord the way Saul abandoned the ark. And so here we are in 2 Samuel 6. David is bringing back the ark where it belongs, to the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. And he's enlisted the help of two youth pastors, a young man named Uzzah and his brother Ahiu. Now, I will just note in passing, not a bad plan on David's part. Anyone who's been a Christian for a long time knows that if you're going to move, you want to get the youth group on board, right? 10 pizzas, a couple of two liters of Coke. You'll have 30 kids out there helping you move. Life hacks with Pastor Joel. Okay, back to the story. Like a lot of things, it sounded good on paper. Here they are. We got Uzzah, we got his brother Ahio, we got all the people. They're playing music. But things didn't work out so well for the young man named Uzzah. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets, cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there. Beside the ark of God. The oxen stumbled. Uzzah reached out to grab the ark of the covenant before it hit the ground. And God struck him dead. Does that sound fair to you? Now, I know, that this, I know we're not supposed to question these things. They're in the Bible and we love the Bible. We love God's word. But is this fair? He was just trying to catch the ark before the ark touched the ground. I probably would have done the same thing. I'm sure many of you would have done the same thing to reach out 
and take the ark. What's going on here? Well, as is so often the case, there's a lot going on just beneath the surface. It's a little bit more complicated than we think. The first problem is that only the priests were supposed to carry the ark. Uzzah wasn't a priest. His brother Ahio wasn't a priest. He was essentially the son of the guy who had the ark in his backyard because Saul had abandoned it there many, many years earlier. A second major problem is that the ark should have never been on an ox cart. You remember the poles from the picture of the ark before? The priests were supposed to carry the ark using those poles. That's what God told them to do. Eugene Peterson notes in his commentary on this, he points out that they were using Philistine technology to transport the ark. They said, essentially, well, we could carry the ark like God said to carry the ark, or we could put it on, the, on this cart. That's what the Philistines did. Sometimes in our rush to modernize things, we miss the point that we cannot improve on God's word. God says what he says for a reason. What's the reason? Why is it that only the priests could carry the ark? Why is it that they couldn't put it on an ox cart? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with just grabbing it when it's about to fall? Again, Peterson points out that Uzzah grabbed the ark because he thought the dirt from the ground will make the ark unclean. What he didn't say was that the dirt from my heart will make the ark unclean. What he didn't say is the dirt from my soul will make the ark unclean. See, the problem is that Uzzah did not understand the depth of his sin. He didn't understand that sinful people, people like us, cannot touch the Ark of the Covenant without God's grace. People like us, sinful people, cannot approach God in prayer apart from God's grace. Sinful people like us cannot approach God in worship apart from God's grace. The chasm is too big. It's too vast. There is an infinite chasm separating sinful people from a holy God. And we cannot cross that, that vast, bridge that gap by being good people. Uzzah was probably a good person. We cannot bridge the gap by being religious people. Obviously, Uzzah was a religious person. He died in the middle of a worship service. All of our good intentions are never enough. I have no doubt that Uzzah had good intentions when he reached out to take hold of the ark. The problem is our sin is too great, and so we need someone to bridge the unbridgeable gap. We need a mediator. We need Jesus. You see, Jesus bridged the gap by removing the one thing that separates us from God. Jesus bridged the gap by taking away our sin. On the cross, when Jesus died, our sin was expunged from our record, and His righteousness, the righteousness of God, the sinless righteousness of Jesus, was imputed to us. 
It was credited to our account, our account. And so when God sees us, he does not see our fallenness. He does not see our sin. He sees the glorious face of Jesus, the sinless Son of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated the people from the Ark of the Covenant, which was housed in the Holy of Holies, was torn in two. In other words, we can touch the ark now. We can approach God because of Jesus. We can grab hold of the ark without dying because Jesus grabbed hold of us by dying. He died like Uzzah so that we could live like David. Uzzah's death shows us why we desperately need the grace of God. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. Scene two. David doubts the ark, showing us where we find God's grace. Verse eight. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? When Uzzah died, David was angry and he was afraid. He was angry because he thought, God has struck down Uzzah, and this is unjust, it's not fair. But then he was afraid because he wondered, if God would strike down Uzzah for touching the ark, what will God do to me? And so, he took the Ark of the Covenant and he did the unthinkable. He abandoned it. He went to the home of a man named Obed-Edom, rang the doorbell, and dropped it off on his front porch like an Amazon package. Ran away. Obed came out and said, what's this? The Ark of the Covenant. Oh no, what am I going to do? Then something amazing happened. God's grace happened. Verse 11 and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Where do we find God's grace? Do we find it in the city of Jerusalem? Do we find it with the righteous people, with the moral people? Do we find it with the powerful people, the rich people? Well, in this case, we find it in the home of a man named Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom was definitely an outsider. We're told he was a Gittite, and Gittites were Gentiles. And he was probably an unbeliever, because at that time, most of the Gentiles were unbelievers. So there he was, minding his own business, Mining, keeping the sheep, picking fruit, gardening, whatever it is the good faithful Gittites did back in those days. All of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, God showed up and changed his life. Why? Because that's how grace works. Grace is not something that we could ever earn. Grace is not something that we could ever deserve. Grace is a gift of God. It comes to us most of the time when we're not even looking for it. And yet, God shows His love for us in this. 
that while we were yet sinners, Gittites, living just within the border of Israel, minding of our own business, Christ died for us. God's grace falls like manna from heaven. It roars like a lion and bleeds like a lamb. It wears a crown of thorns. It loves. It serves. It sacrifices. David's unexpected doubt leads us to an unexpected place. Obed-Edom's house where we find God's amazing grace. Scene three, David dances before the ark, showing us how we respond to God's grace. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. That is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. There are a lot of ways to talk about being a Christian. We are followers of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. We are learners. We are students. We're missionaries. All of those things are true, but we're also dancers. We're people who dance before the Lord with all of our might. We're not like people who dance like it's our nephew's wedding. We kind of got to get out there. It's a little bit awkward. We're sort of going from side to side. We are people who dance like Elaine from Seinfeld. We are people who dance like Kevin Bacon from Footloose. If that crusty old pastor from Footloose had known the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would have organized the dance, and he would have invited everyone to celebrate God's amazing grace. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. What a picture of joy. What a picture of gratitude. If you are a Christian and there's no joy in your life, if there's no dance in your life, if there's no song in your life, might I suggest to you that perhaps your Jesus is too small. Perhaps your view of yourself is too large, your sense of your own importance is too large, your sense of your own sin is too small, and your Jesus is too small, and that's why there's no joy. I think you might not understand that you were dead like Uzzah until God made you alive. That's the message of Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We touched the ark. We broke the rules. We did what God told us not to do, and the anger of the Lord burst out upon us, striking us dead, spiritually dead. And God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So turn up the music. Everybody on the dance floor, grandma and grandpa, Aunt Phyllis, everybody, get out there and celebrate God's amazing grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Scene four, last one. Michael has a very different reaction. Michael despises the ark showing us what happens when we reject God's grace. Verse 16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him 
in her heart. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. If you are a joyful Christian, there will always be people who rain on your parade. There will always be people who will despise your joy. There will always be moralistic, legalistic people who are deeply suspicious about your happiness. Look what happened here. Michael was sarcastic. She had contempt for David. She called him vulgar, shameless. Notice something else here. Three times in this passage, verse 16, verse 20, and verse 23, Michael is called, not just Michael, but Michael, the daughter of Saul. What is the narrator telling us? He's telling us that like her father, Michael was proud, she was arrogant. Like her father, she had no interest in God. Saul had no interest in the Ark of the Covenant, none. Michael, his daughter, has no interest either. It meant everything to David. Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. So I don't think she understood, and I don't think she wanted to understand that the grace of God is not for the high and mighty, but it's, on for, the, it's for the meek and the lowly. So what happened to her? Well, verse 23 tells us, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. I think that's meant to be symbolic. I think that her physical barrenness is a sign of her spiritual barrenness. I think she was spiritually barren for the rest of her life because she couldn't humble herself before the Lord. She couldn't receive the gift of God's grace. She said, I can't worship like this. I'm the daughter of the king. Do you hear the irony there? For if she had worshipped like David, she would have become a daughter of the king. My friends, don't make that mistake. Don't let your pride stand between you and forgiveness. Don't let your pride stand between you and and a relationship with the living God. Don't let your pride stand in the way of your joy. Don't let your pride keep you from embracing the King. My invitation to you this morning as we close is very counterintuitive, but hear me out. I want you to take hold of the ark. I want you to grab hold of God's grace with both hands. You can do that because of Jesus. He died the death of Uzzah so that you could live the life of David. Because of Jesus, we can dance. Because of Jesus, we can sing. Praise God for the Ark of the Covenant. Praise God for the God of the Covenant. Praise God for His amazing grace. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord our God, 
our Savior and our King. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for David. Thank you for the ark. Thank you for your mercy, which is greater than all of our sins. Hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.